Welcome to another episode of Web Dev Weekly, the weekly podcast about web development. I'm Richard Gottlieber. And I'm Brad Garropy. And with us on the show today is our second guest ever, James Quick. James is a developer advocate at Auth0 and a content creator on many platforms like Twitch and YouTube. In his free time, he enjoys sports like soccer, golf, and basketball, and he's definitely a big fan of Harry Potter and Pokemon. Welcome to the show, man. What's up? What's up? Thanks for having me. This is probably the best and most personal intro I've ever gotten. So I appreciate that, Brad. <laughs> Longtime online buddies. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. So you mentioned DevRel. What does that do, James? What's a DevRel? Yeah, I actually read an article by Kim Maida, M-A-I-D-A this morning, which she was referring to the fact that like people still don't really know what it is, although it is becoming more popular. Anyway, developer relations is typically like a team and that team, their responsibility is to get out there and actually uh, interact with developers in the community, spend time with developers in the community, understand developers in the community. From a product perspective, they're supposed to create content and give talks at conferences to help people understand what the product is, help encourage them to use it, help solve use cases. And then also on the flip side, advocate for developers in the community to take their feedback on documentation or how SDKs and things work and bring that back internally into product teams. So developer relations would be kind of your broader team. A developer advocate would typically be an individual on that team who does those sorts of activities, go out to conferences, do YouTube videos, live streams, podcasts, uh, stuff like that to try to gain awareness, exposure, earn trust in the community, and then help advocate again for the developers in the community. I think it's like a really cool position to have, in my opinion, because when you're a developer advocate, number one, you get to be social. And if you're a social kind of person, which I totally believe you are, <laughs> it fits very naturally into your personality. But also like you can kind of approach it from a little bit of a selfish point of view where like if you want to see changes in a product or if your community wants to see changes in a product, you get to like strengthen that voice and say, hey, we can be better and easier like this. And I think that's every developer's dream is like, oh, if it could, if if this product could only be exactly the way I want it to be, <laughs> let's make it that way. And you just get to be that liaison between the people and the company. Yeah, uh, the liaison, I think, is is a big one. So we would be like the most public facing people for the most part outside of like a, a CEO, CTO, like that's doing stuff all over the world. We would be some of the most public facing. And I think you hit on that aspect of the combination of technical and social. Like I, for a little while went by a tagline of the social developer. Cause I've always, I've, I've been pretty much an extrovert. Although I go through phases of being a little more introverted, but I love spending time with people. I learned that I love teaching. And those are two of the things like that go hand in hand are really essential. Um, and DevRel is being empathetic with developers, helping developers and just being a part of the community, being out and a part of those conversations that people are already having. How did you kind of figure out that you like teaching? I remember back in college, like I was the guy with the dry erase marker on the whiteboard trying to get my friends to understand. Like that's where I kind of figured out that I had a knack for it a little bit, but I didn't carry it into my career. So like, what about you? How did you like come across that passion for teaching? Yeah, uh, really oddly and luckily, I guess so. Um, I was applying for jobs my senior year of college. Everybody's applying for like this, the standard software developer jobs, which I applied for that at Microsoft. I got shot down. They said I would be a good fit for Microsoft, but not for that role. So I applied for another role, which is the technical account manager that I didn't get again. 
And they kind of picked up on like my social tendencies and they said, Hey, how about a developer? At that point it was technical evangelist, which is such a, an out there term that no one at the time, especially myself had heard of. And I was like, okay, this sounds really weird, but what you're saying sounds interesting. So I got kind of thrust into this role and at 22 was given talks to people who had been writing code for as long as I'd been alive, right? Like this really weird, really weird flip of a situation. I'd never been a public speaker. I'd never created content. I'd never done most of the things except for tinker that a technical evangelist evangelist would typically do. So I got really thrust into it and I kind of did that, that role for three years. I enjoyed it. I started to get more comfortable speaking. I started creating YouTube videos, but I really didn't fully appreciate all of that until I got away from it. So I moved to Memphis, which is where I'm now. I was a software developer for FedEx, eventually got into architecture there, but I realized I really missed this other aspect of being technical. And that was sharing that, that knowledge with people and then teaching other people how to do stuff too. So I missed being in front of a classroom doing guest lectures. I missed being upstage on stage at a conference, uh, talking at the podium. I missed creating that YouTube content. So I really just found like I was enjoying the technical aspects of what I was doing. I was enjoying working with a team, but I missed this like broader sense of, of what essentially came down to teaching and being part of the community. And I started to do some of that stuff on my own. I started to pay my way to go to conferences again started creating YouTube videos again, and then decided I really wanted to get um, paid to do the stuff that I really enjoyed again as well. And that's how I ended up at All Zero a little over a year and a half ago. You started out kind of in that DevRel space, went to being an actual like pure developer, I don't know what to call it, right? Like what yeah. kind of differentiate there? Like actually went to like spending all day coding. Yep. And then now you're back in the space where you're talking and interacting with people again. Do, do you feel that the challenges are on par as far as like the difficulty there where like, you know, figuring out the problem solving piece, I guess. Right. Like how would you compare the time that you spent just being a developer versus now like creating content more and like that problem solving piece? Cause I'll give you a little bit of like why I'm asking. So most of my career has been, you know, just in like the, I started out life as a sysadmin and now like do development work full time. And Developer relations seems really interesting. Like I actually spent a year teaching fifth grade. So like the teaching part, like I love that part. And so everything you're saying, I'm like, man, this sounds really interesting. (laughs) But like, how would you compare the two as far as like the type of challenge that you face? Yeah. You know, I haven't, haven't thought too much about that in the past. I guess one thing to consider DevRel is a pretty open-ended role in terms of what you do and how you do what you do, if that makes sense. Right. So like software development, like if you're, if you're in an agile team, like you, if you have like a project manager or a scrum master or whatever, like someone's coming up with the stories and the features and things that you're working on. And then from there, it's a pretty logical thing. Like I, I, I want to accomplish this. I need to go figure out what I don't already know to get to that point. It's a little more, not in a bad way at all. It's a little more like clear path, I guess. It's a little more like, this is exactly what you need to do. DevRel is very different. Like thinking about doing YouTube videos and Twitch streams and podcasts and giving talks at conferences. Those are each like very unique set of skills that each have these rabbit holes that go on infinitely. Like I can't tell you how many videos I've watched on YouTube about making videos for YouTube or how many videos I've watched about doing live streams and Twitch or how many videos I've watched about like setting up lights and camera. So I think like as creative as software development can be, and it absolutely can be, 
I think there's an exponential level of creativity in uh, in Devrel just because of how many different ways you can take it. I think it's it could be easy for people like if I was stuck on a project software development wise for too long, I would I would start to get that itch to like I want to touch something else. I want to experiment with something else. And so for that sense, for me, again, the DevRel stuff just makes more sense. I've got a lot of different creative outlets. We actually, a little teaser here, we have an Aussie rap music video that I uh, did the rap for that has finally gone through editing. We should be publishing. And like, what what wild, ridiculous world do I live in where I can like, <laughs> I can rap on paid company time and have that benefit the company? Like, how cool is that going to be for me to share when that comes out? So I think that like open-ended level of creativity, that's the kind of stuff that really gets me excited. Not to say again, that software development doesn't have that. Maybe just not to that extent, not, not that many open doors that you can walk down. Yeah, definitely. Okay. That makes sense. When it comes to that, like finding what to focus on next, right? Like you mentioned, it's just basically like a choose your own adventure, right? With like the (laughs) open-endedness where, other than just like social media, where do you find the inspiration or do you go like see what people are asking in the community? I guess like, are you, are you predicting what the questions will be or are you kind of answering questions as they come up within like the developer community? Uh, in terms of questions and like answering those definitely a combination of the two. I, I try to be really proactive on Twitter, especially that's where I spend a lot of my time. I also run a discord server. So I spend a lot of time there. But a lot of time on Twitter, as soon as I see someone mention all zero, positive or negative, I want to jump on that and, and not be pushy and say, you should use it or your feedback is wrong or whatever. But I, I want to understand the feedback, bring that back internally and also help answer any questions. So that's a little more reactive is like you you react to someone that's posting positive, negative questions or just experiences. There's also the aspect of like you hear some of those things multiple times. That's where as a content creator, you want to start creating content that you can point people to around those problems so that you're not answering them one off every time. But I think some of the like jumping ahead, maybe less about answering questions, but more about meeting developers where they are slash where they are appearing more often. And examples of that would be Twitch. So just before the pandemic, we actually kind of started a strategy at All Zero to do live streams. Obviously, that became a much bigger thing for us during the pandemic when we weren't doing in-person conferences. But we kind of jumped on that not like medium early. I think like everybody does it now. So we were a little right. ahead of a lot of people behind some others. So that was a cool thing for us to jump ahead of. Um, also, one of the things I'm going to start, another teaser uh, in the next month or so, is monthly Twitter spaces on just the idea of like creators creators can mean so many different things It can mean so much different content but i don't know if you've if you're on twitter very often but twitter spaces are blowing up like i'm i was on one a few months ago and it was 800 people live listening to the panel that i was on i see them weekly where it's 100 200 people listening which is just so wild but that like that's the kind of place where you you want to be where developers are so as they start these new trends honestly on new platforms you want to be there because they're going to be there. And if you can meet them where they are, then I think you have a better ability to earn trust, a better ability for them to send you questions and feedback they have, and then uh, react to those as they come in. Yeah. And really, like you talked about how content creation can be very free form. And a lot of these new social media platforms are releasing different ways to share. So like you talked about Twitch streaming, but have you ever considered as like a developer advocate utilizing things like YouTube shorts, 
Instagram Reels, TikTok, all these really like newer and more alternative, shorter, concise bits of information. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, like I'm I'm cheesing for people who can't see me in the camera. Like this is this is exactly the kind of stuff that is specifically top of mind for me right now. I mentioned that Aussie rap video. Um, it's only a minute and a half. I want to post that to YouTube. I don't know if it'll technically be like a, a quote unquote hashtag short or not, but it's shorter form video content. TikTok is something that's in the back of my mind. Um, I actually brought that up with our social media team and the one piece of feedback, which I think really makes sense is if we're going to do that, we need to be really consistent about it. Like it's not, it's not going to be beneficial for us to throw out a, a TikTok or a short on Instagram reels or wherever once every month or two months. Like we really need to buy in and be ready to be consistent there. So that's one of my goals, like fingers crossed over here, like Q3, Q4, to, to have the buy-in to do that consistency. And if you think about uh, Cassidy Williams is one that's huge in this space. Um, Brian Clark is a friend of mine from Microsoft who I think has done a really good job in this space as well. Those, those videos that are informational slash also funny, but just have that personality in them. The personality to me, like that's when you buy in. Like if you're, if you're just viewing like somebody shares the tip, you appreciate that. It's really nice. But if they have their personality, if you learn a little bit about honestly, how weird and quirky people are, you start to connect with people and that's where you get that longer term buy-in. So the one thing we haven't talked about, which is one of selfishly my favorite aspects of DevRel is the fact that like my me continuing to grow my personal brand is very beneficial for Osiro. So like if if I had the biggest following in the world and I work for Osiro, that's going to carry a lot of weight for Osiro. So first of all, I don't have the biggest following in the world, but as I continue to grow that, as I grow on Twitch or going on podcasts or YouTube or whatever, that's more that's more credibility that comes to Osiro through my audience. So that's a really cool balance that we get to play with of furthering our own personal brands while also then doing stuff that's more directly related to Osiro. That is something I was kind of curious about. So I know you have quite the catalog of personal projects and personal like videos as far as like uh, you just did one on Svelkit, for example, right? Yep. And you do a very good job of compartmentalizing like your personal stuff and your work stuff from what I've seen. Maybe I'm like missing it there, but it feels like, you know, it's not like, oh, hey, it's another James video talking about Svelkit and how you can <laughs> integrate it with Auth0, right? Like, it, it, so I think that is like, that's very good. But how do you kind of, I guess, keep those two things compartmentalized while still building your brand in a way that benefits the work that you do too, right? Because like the work that you do is very, like there's there's a ton of overlap there. Yeah. Or to kind of come at the question a different way too, like I kind of want to know what Auth0 kind of allows you to do that crosses those lines as well. Like have they set any boundaries for you? Yeah, uh, it's, this can certainly vary between companies between culture between belief on on devrel um i kind of i came in with my idea the the one thing that's most important to me is i'm never going to sacrifice my personal brand i'm never going to take a job where i can't moonlight and do anything that i want to outside of work hours that's never that's never a situation that i'm going to allow myself to be in the second aspect of that is i want to fully own my personal brand so not only can i do it but i also fully own it and i can do whatever the hell i want like I'm going to be me. I'm going to create the content that I want. I'm going to be genuine, 
Because if I'm not, I'm going to sacrifice the trust and the relationships that I have with people out there that watch or listen or whatever with my content. So those are probably the two things that are most important with me coming into or even thinking about, which I'm not, but thinking about working for a different company in the future in DevRel. So I, one, I've never had, I've never had a specific conversation about my personal brand almost with anyone up until recently for a very specific reason that is a good thing. Um, so it's never really come up. One of the things that I, I try to separate again with YouTube content, I work, my wife leaves early in the morning at like 630. So before I start all zero work at about nine, I've got a couple hours to play with of like, I can hang around and watch TV and make breakfast or I can create content and, and do that sort of stuff. And a lot of time I do spend doing content. So my YouTube videos, almost all of that time is in my personal time. But what's kind of cool though, is because I have this personal brand, I have a, a decent following on YouTube. I can now authentically create a video that includes Aussie because I think Aussie is kick ass. And now through my personal brand, Aussie gets that much more exposure. That's why, that's why having your personal brand while also representing a company is huge, right? Like I can take my personal brand to any company and immediately I can, I can authentically, assuming it's a product I believe in and want to share, create content around the product that is on my personal channel. So it's just that much bigger of an audience to get exposure to. A couple of things, like you mentioned, it seems like I have a pretty clear delineation. A couple of things that may not, uh, you may not have seen or noticed. I do weekly live streams on, I need to catch up. I haven't done it in a couple of weeks, but on a series called Learning Quick. Brad's been on there in the past, but I bring on a guest to talk about something, like some topic that they're interested in, some technology that they created, something that they're learning, whatever it is. Um, I bring on guests to talk about those things. And that is on company time. And it almost never specifically relates to all zero. Now, does me growing a Twitch following then mean if there are conversations because people have questions or if it comes up that those people get exposed to all zero? That's a plus. Again, like me continuing to grow that personal brand is still beneficial back to all zero. And I think that's part of the trust that you end up having in developer advocates too, of them not looking at this solely as a way to build their audience, but looking at it as a way to do both. I can support and continue to grow personal brand and then potentially use that also to bring awareness um, and hopefully trust to the product uh, that you represent as well. And it's the biggest unspoken perk of the job, honestly, to be able to build your personal brand and recognition whether it be on company time or not, because they, they do, you have that cross pollination between the two. Here's another really cool example of benefiting both ways. So at all in the last year, like most other companies, video has become a bigger thing for us, right? With pandemic, we're not in person at conferences as much. So we do a lot more video. I also create a lot of videos for my YouTube channel. So if I create videos at home and I get better at creating videos, I then become better at creating videos for Aussie If I'm then creating videos for Aussie and I get, I learn something, I'm now better at creating videos in my personal time as well. And that also gets into one of the things that's happened recently is I uh, haven't like publicly announced this, although I, I've shared it with a few people, have gotten a promotion and the new title is developer marketing media manager. This is for all intents and purposes, a made up position because they basically made this up to find a spot for me to leverage the skills and experience that I have mostly outside of all zero. Like this is coming from my knowledge and growth on YouTube and other forms of media for me to have 
more ability to influence the way that we do technical content, specifically in video on YouTube, and then also expanding out into some of the things that we mentioned earlier, Twitter spaces, TikTok, hopefully, again, we'll see when and where we get there. But that's the kind of stuff that's top of mind. But this all stems from me having this really kind of wild growth in YouTube over the last year. I've gotten to do it super consistently. And I've jumped from in a almost almost a year from either 10 or 15,000 to now almost 90,000 followers on YouTube, which is so wild to me. But that a lot of that sparked from my role in DevRel being what it was of being able to learn on both ends, continue to get better on both ends and then give myself the opportunity to be consistent. And that has now led to a new opportunity within Auth0 to continue to leverage that expertise and knowledge that I've gained over the past year. Dude, congratulations. Like that sounds, that sounds like so much fun. And I think I saw like a photo of you building a studio or something yeah. inside of an Auth0 office. Like, is that, is that related? Yeah, this actually, uh, that started before I got the role uh, officially. Uh, but anyway, what we're, what we did was we have an office in Bellevue and we figured for people that are either in the office or for us in DevRel that go to the office occasionally, we can go and plan and like do bulk recordings while we're there. So we can knock out a full series of 10 videos or somebody that's in the office that doesn't have a recording set up at home now can become a contributor, can become a content creator, leverage the studio to do that. And that's one of my focuses in the, in the new role is enabling and helping people grow as content creators, both internally and externally. That's one of the things that I'm super excited about in the role is helping people get started in the space, helping them grow in the space and being able to support them along the way. And I think that is one of the unspoken challenges that comes with a developer advocate role. You, you kind of have to have, if you're gonna be doing it professionally, a lot of gear, a lot of setup, a lot of understanding and what doesn't happen is you you don't see companies building these like media studios to do this on location in the office, right? Like I, I had the opportunity to stream some open source development with Adobe, but that was only enabled by the fact that I was asking for it and I had the setup at home. So, I mean, note to any company that really wants to have a, a solid developer relations team, you either have to provide that or find folks that already have these types of setups, which means that the talent pool is kind of small, you know, but if you're doing what you're saying is like enabling more people to get better at content creation with the content that you create, it's going to help grow that talent pool because it is a relatively new field. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I've been looking at internally is having like kind of a a video package, a set of technology things that we recommend. So we have a stipend for working at home, for desk, for chair, for monitors, that sort of stuff. But we don't have anything uh, kind of prescriptive for recording. And if you get into DevRel, like I don't think it's fair for us to assume that you've spent thousands of dollars on equipment. I think that's our responsibility to help and support in that sense. So one of the things I'm looking at, most people come in with a, a lot of equipment because you have experience doing this stuff already, which is which is great. But I'm looking at kind of putting together a package of like, hey, if you don't have anything or if you need to fill in a few gaps, here's kind of our recommended set of things. And then hopefully have no problem having that be expense so they can be set up and ready to go. Yeah. And there's definitely like small, medium and large yeah. <laughs> packages, you know, like you, you don't need a whole lot to get started. But to really take it to the next level, you start diving deep and uh, it gets expensive. And that's something too, like even not 
directly DevRel related, but remote work over the past year, like Brad and I have talked on previous episodes about like the stipends and how a lot of people didn't use them for things that would uh, improve the work from home experience for others as well, right? Was so like the the camera and stuff like that. So it's a more natural feeling conversation. Given the variety of stuff, like especially thinking like TikTok and DevRel, I do have a question. When like you have a lot of YouTube videos and you also do Twitch live streams and TikTok's gonna be like bite-sized chunks. Do you already mentally like have a framework for what kind of content belongs where? It's an ever evolving thought process. Um, so one example okay. of that is like, I'm, I'm in a really good rhythm with YouTube. I've now created at least one YouTube video most weeks for the past, like two or three years. That's I'm in a great rhythm. Like I can, there's a million different ideas. I can, I can record, I can edit, I can knock it out and I can get something done fairly quickly. And so I figured like, why don't I leverage that to expand into other platforms? And I originally had a goal of like for each or like most of the videos I do, just create a blog post. Like I've already got more or less a script. I already know what I'm going to build. If it's a tutorial, I already know what's there. And so the idea of just repurposing that and reformatting that into a blog post seemed like it would be really easy. turns out I like, I've done lots of blog posts in the past and I, I just don't enjoy them near as much as YouTube videos. So like that one hasn't quite panned out in terms of consistency, consistency. I want to do more of that. But I think the point is that you take, you take a piece of content where YouTube is probably my core. And then I start looking at how to transition that into other platforms or vice versa, right? If I do a Twitch stream, which I did this th one this morning, I tried out something called Next Auth, which is uh, something a lot of people use for doing authentication in Next.js. And I tried it out like there's no reason that after I've already tried this out, that can't now become a tutorial that I do on YouTube because I've got the experience. So you can kind of leverage it like I've already done a little work now record a video or record a video and take that framework and apply it in different places. But one of my goals for the past two or three years that I, I haven't executed on as much as I would like is to have more of my personality in the content that I do. Like I, I can like with friends of mine, I'm like super outspoken. I'm super extroverted. I'm obnoxiously, I say obnoxiously funny. Like I think I'm a funny person, but I don't think that translates as much as I would like to in the content that I create. And I really want to be, I really want people to, to see and relate to how quirky, weird, sometimes funny, sometimes cheesy, like that I am as a person. And that's where I see more of the TikTok, more of the shorter videos. Like let, let me just be goofy. And I mentioned like the idea of like the rap video. I, I kind of want to make that a theme for myself. That's something I've done personally for years. Like since college, I've written rap songs and recorded them for myself. And I want that to be like how weird, quirky of a thing for me to share with other people that most people would never expect. Like you would never see me in a YouTube video and be like, I bet that dude can rap really good. Right. So I want, <laughs> like, I want to embrace that and have that be part of the personality that people see in these other platforms, specifically like the shorts and TikTok and that sort of stuff. Okay. That's cool. You took that in a completely different direction than I was thinking about it, but that's awesome. Like I, I definitely can see the benefit of leveraging those more spontaneous, like short form platforms for personality and like having YouTube be the more, I guess, like formal place. And I think that like, this goes back to some of the stuff that we've talked about before, Brad, where like Twitch streaming versus a YouTube video, like they just feel different 
when you're making them because one's supposed to be produced and the other one's like, it's happening right now. And you know, if something goes awry, well, welcome to real life. <laughs> Where I was originally going to take this question was when it comes to DevRel, one thing I'm curious about, like a lot of the content that's created just in general in the developer space seems more beginner centric. And do you feel like that applies to DevRel too? Because like you, in, in my mind, at least, you know, not, not having the job, <laughs> like in my mind, you're interfacing more with people who are already in the developer space, right? And so you're not introducing, while you're introducing new topics, it's not too new to the space people. So do you approach them differently or do you still kind of treat it as like, make it beginner friendly because if it's approachable to beginners, it's approachable to everybody. Like how do you kind of go about that? Walking that line, I guess. So the balance of creating content uh, who you're creating it to, what your audience is, and, and how beginner it is. I think this is one one really important thing for people to know. When you get in DevRel, a lot of the stuff you do is fairly introductory. Again, like I may not be teaching people Next.js, but I'm teaching people how to integrate Auth0 with Next.js or React or whatever framework. I'm not teaching you how to build enterprise apps, right? Like that's not a conversation that I have. Going back to me starting my career at Microsoft, that was actually one of the downsides of me starting in DevRel. It was I didn't have really technical, I didn't have the technical experience. I didn't have the chops. So again, when I would go in and give these talks to people that were experienced, I could offer them something new that they hadn't done before. But in terms of overall development and really understanding bigger enterprise use cases, I was nowhere near there. So when I transitioned to FedEx, I 100% needed that experience. Like I needed three years, I think at a minimum, to everyday write code and then to move into what I got into, which is higher level architecture stuff of how do we make decisions to put multiple applications together in a streamlined way, in a way that makes sense and scales and all that stuff. So that said, now I'm back in this, in this realm where the code that I write is like introductory stuff or it's demos that I put together that covers those introductory things. Like I could create a full stack app with Next and Auth0 and Fauna as a database or like whatever the stack is, build an app and then have Auth0 be a part of that. But the Auth0 part is still introductory, right? Like there's, this is one of the benefits of the SDK. The SDK does most of the stuff for you. So don't have to cover, I don't even have to cover how to build API routes. Like it's abstracted from you in the SDK. So a lot of what we do is pretty beginner focus specific to Auth0. Now, I think as a content creator, outside of a specific product, now you're looking at for any piece of individual content, who is your audience going to be? If you're targeting like an enterprise scenario, you can assume that they have enterprise experience. Like people aren't going to be searching for how to scale my app to a million users if they're just learning how to code, right? Like that's a, that's a different audience. So I think that's one of the things I probably don't do as formally as, as I might should sometimes. And I would say a lot of people are in the situation of really thinking about as I create this specific piece of content, who is the intended audience? And then what should I expect them to know coming into it? And I think that's one thing that people do well in video content is saying, Hey, in this, in this video, we're going to build this. I expect you to already know how to do this, this, and this. So the expectations are clear. They don't come in with unrealistic expectations and get upset. They come in with like understanding what they're coming to learn and what they should already be able to bring to the table. Now, okay, cool. I feel like I ask this question to every developer advocate I come across because there's this notion that 
the topics you cover are mostly rudimentary integrations with whatever product you're representing. Do you feel that there's a pay scale difference when it comes to the developer relations team versus like a software engineering team? Yeah, I think I think we've even chatted about that a little bit in the past. I really don't know, to be honest. And here here's the big discrepancy for me. When I was working at FedEx, I it's a local company. It's a relatively old IT culture. It's not a startup. It's not that kind of feel. And the pay from FedEx to Osiro is just drastically different. Like regardless of DevRel or, or yeah. software dev or whatever. Like I got up to um, 90, I think is what I was making at the end of my career at FedEx. And then jumped up by 30 when I moved to Osiro just because like because of the company, not not because the role was any more difficult or demanding or anything like that. I think it was more of a cultural and company difference. So honestly, I don't have a great answer of how salaries compare. And I think you'd have to do that within a given company. Like you either do software development and you get around this at this company or at the same company you do DevRel and get whatever that range is too. Um, I guess that like the, the cop-out answer just because I don't have specifics is like to do the research on Glassdoor and that sort of stuff. But I don't, I'm not exactly sure. I will, I will add one thing to that, to that though. Like someone that's very, very talented engineering wise and has like really, really deep technical knowledge that you can pay a lot for that person often, not all the time is not the same person that's going to give, get up and give a talk to, uh, to upper level management. And they're not going to represent your company externally and they're not going to be the ones to create YouTube videos. So I will say that like as much as like really deep software development knowledge is a very specific set of knowledge that can be certainly compensated for. So is the ability to stand up on stage in front of 500 people and give a talk. Like that's a very, especially mixing that with development skills is a very unique set of skills that doesn't apply to that many people. Although I feel like I see more and more people do it. So I think in that sense, I could, I, I would not be surprised at all if the price discrepancy, there really wasn't any because it's still a very valuable set of skills that not that many people can bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you have like your typical stereotypes of, uh, people who post on social media a lot and super good developers and images come into your mind when you think of each of those, but you can find that really great intersection of those two skill sets. It's definitely invaluable to, to a company for sure. Yeah. So now let's talk about some of the stuff that you're doing purely in developer world. I've seen some content come from you recently about you exploring Svelte and using SvelteKit uh, for the first time. I have some very old experience with Svelte about a year ago. Uh, and in, in that framework's lifespan, that's like forever ago. A lot has changed since then. So can you just tell us like what, what your thoughts are about Svelte in general and SvelteKit specifically, maybe contrast it to like Next.js, something that, that most of our listeners are probably familiar with? Yeah. Um, I have loved every bit of experience I've had with Svelte and SvelteKit. So the, I think the, the easiest comparison to start with, because I think most of, most of the big differences come in just Svelte, like before SvelteKit. So if you look at right. Svelte versus React, and if you specifically start with React and you think about doing forms, and this is the stereotypical example people give in React that's like, this is way too freaking hard. Like this is way more difficult than it should be is doing forms and doing two-way data binding. So in, in two-way data binding in React, you have to uh, you have to use useState to keep track of your data, which gets you into hooks and kind of understanding how hooks works in React. 
and then you have to create your uh, your input of some sort, and then you have to call a callback function to say, hey, every time this thing changes, go and update that piece of state. And then you can use that thing in like a form submission. The thing, one of the things that I love most about Svelte is you can do two-way data binding as easy as anything else I've ever seen. And it's just, it's a bind annotation inside of HTML. So I think it's bind value on your input. And then you have a piece of data inside of your component and that's it. There's no extra stuff like that two-way data binding is taken care of for you. And it's, it's magical, especially like coming from React, like we have really awesome libraries for doing forms just because doing them without the library is stupid to be like, it's so much more difficult than it seems like it should be. So that's one specific feature that I think is incredible. Another is the idea of the stores and Svelte. So if you look at like state management and React, uh, you could get into like Redux, which when I, I haven't used it much, but when I got into it, it just seemed like way overkill to me. I was like, why, why do we need all these things to do something that seems simpler than what it is? Like re- the idea of reducers, especially until you really scale, just was like, why do I need this? And so it seemed overcomplicated to me. Then you can get into the context API, which is pretty sweet, but also a little cumbersome to kind of understand the syntax and setup. Svelte has stores built into it, and it has about the easiest way I've seen to create data that can then be shared and accessed and updated throughout your entire application through other components. And that's huge because you get into like you use Redux or uh, context API and React to avoid like the prop drilling idea. You don't really have to worry about that out of the box with Svelte because of stores. They are just absolutely fantastic. So those are two of the things that uh, I think are noticeably better in Svelte. I think the other other pieces of syntax, the smaller things, they just seem clean. They seem to make sense. They seem more natural. It's a little less of like learning a framework, I feel like. So in that sense, I like those things about Svelte. When you add on Svelte Kit, it's pretty much a one-to-one for me with Next.js. Next.js is like, Vercel just got a bunch of money and funding and they've been around for longer. Next.js is a top-notch framework that I think probably all of us here are really big fans of, including myself, like really, really big. SvelteKit is like, is kind of there, right? Like the, the basic idea of your API endpoints, your static generation, your server-side render routes, your dynamic routes. It was exactly what I expected. Nothing more really, nothing less. So to be able to take, to port over something like Next.js into using Svelte, which would be SvelteKit, leveraging some of that syntax that I really like that I just mentioned, and then building out the same thing is actually really powerful for me. So SvelteKit is still in beta, like they still got work to do and and firming things up and adding features and stuff. But the stuff that I expected and hoped to be there was there and that was pretty nice. I remember back when I was working with Svelte, one of the things that I had trouble with was tooling. Um, I wanted to, inside of the script tag, use ESLint, TypeScript, and Prettier, right? I wanted that to be treated like, like a regular TypeScript file or a regular JavaScript file. And, and I found that the interaction of those three things trying to play with each other just was not working out uh, when it came to the Svelte script tags. Any update there? You think any of that's gotten any better? I don't know for sure. Like, I can't can't actually answer that question one like i will reiterate svelte kits and beta so i would not be surprised if some of that some of those combinations get tricky or like have issues and stuff that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that like 
SvelteKit has enough for me of like the core functionality that I'm a little less worried about those details for myself right this second because I think they will get ironed out as more and more people get onto the platform and start trying it out. So I don't have specifics. I wouldn't be surprised if there were still some issues with that sort of stuff. I saw some people post about having issues with Tailwind. It worked well when I set it up in SvelteKit, so that was nice. I think you'll be able to get a much better judgment of what it's like when it goes official, gets out of beta and is an official version. I think from like the prettier standpoint that it's there. My only thing is I'm not sure about the TypeScript support. Other than that, I think it's it's pretty good when I used it like maybe three or four weeks ago. Yeah, there, so. as far as I remember, there is a flag now with uh, SvelteKit generating a new project to enable it to be TypeScript. I, I haven't tried it myself. I don't know how it works with that stuff. But as far as I remember, there is a configuration thing as you create the project to go ahead and set it up with TypeScript. Yeah. yeah. And at this point, I would say like Svelte is is so easy and mirrors plain HTML so well that I would almost say that that is the way to go when you step into learning your first framework. Mm. W- what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think that's one of the things that it, that transition is pretty daunting, regardless of what framework, because you you just get into a whole new world of stuff, especially if you've never done it before. Like for me. Learning new framework is just like, I just need to know the syntax. Like I know basically what it's going to give me. I know what to expect. But if you're new to just frameworks in general, it's a big jump. So yeah, I could definitely see that being an easier transition than diving into something uh, like React. Something like Angular. Like Angular, I think, is great in a lot of use cases. If you're coming from just vanilla HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and you don't have an in-depth knowledge of classes and modules and stuff, like that's so intimidating to jump into. Okay, so I'm going to kind of throw a... A curveball question at you. You do a lot of stuff, right? You're, you're all over the place on the internet. And now that conferences are coming back, I'm sure you'll be all over the place conferences as well. But personally, I want to ask, what's your next big thing? Do you have like something big coming up on the horizon, something you're working on, something that's building up to like a big release? What are you working on next? Yeah, I have this year... I wanted to get back into course creation. Um, I created a course last year in 2020, React and Serverless, that didn't do as well as I would like. Like it did well, and I don't want to like, I don't want to want to undersell how hard it is to like sell courses. Right, that's a really difficult thing. I think for me with that type of content, I'm just missing design and branding and marketing and and the whole package. So I started working with a designer in uh, the beginning of the year to do a complete rebrand of everything personal. And she did a lot of good work. And then like, oddly enough, I haven't heard from her after a few messages. And so I haven't, I haven't talked to her and I have been desperately waiting for my podcast co-host, Amy Dutton to finish some freelance work so that I can have her do some of my work. Cause she is absolutely incredible. Like in development design, just being on top of all the stuff that like, she's just insanely incredible. And uh, so I finally get to have a conversation with her to work on to, to a preliminary conversation for her to do a complete redesign, to use my brand that I got from the previous designer to do a complete redesign of my personal site. And one of the things that's most important there, I think, is creating, injecting personality into the site and then also uh, almost templatizing course pages. So if I create a new course, I need to know I know I need to have a title, a cover image, a promo video. Here's what we'll cover, cover. 
here's some uh, testimonials. Like I want to have kind of that templatized, at least in my head and somewhat from a design perspective so that I can start cranking out more courses. Chris Sev on Twitter, who runs uh, better.dev. I feel like I'm capable of doing that, but every time I see him do this, he blows my mind. He comes up with a new course every couple of months out of nowhere. He's done Tailwind, he's done VS Code, he's done React. He just did one recently that came out of nowhere that was really cool. And I feel like that's the kind of stuff I want to be doing, but I'm missing some of the underlying framework and templatization to do these courses and crank them out quicker. So all of that said, I hope to get that design and the template stuff ready. And my goal this year is to start maybe a series of small courses. I haven't quite figured out how to how to break this up, but I want to do something like JavaScript challenges. Um, so there's lots of like Wes Boss did his beginner JavaScript. There's lots of beginner JavaScript material out there. I don't want to just teach beginner JavaScript. I want to apply it to like solving these problems that then help people do better in interviews, help solve problems on their own. So I actually have the domain javascriptchallenges.com. There's absolutely nothing there. Or if there is, it's from me testing something. So it's not real. But uh, I, that's my goal course wise is to get out like maybe one to start. Maybe it's just 20 different challenges that we solve and discuss and show how to improve and show different things in JavaScript to use. But that's my goal is to do more, uh, more JavaScript challenges content, or I guess start doing JavaScript challenges content uh, and build it into a, a course package of some sort. Man, I think that's a great idea because the more that frameworks become popular and the more that JavaScript is used heavily in the browser, we need that missing chunk of content. Too many people jump right into frameworks. And I think it's maybe because vanilla JavaScript content is a little bit old. Like you'll probably see a lot of jQuery tutorials out there instead of, you know, the new ES6 powerful JavaScript that browsers have. So I think I think you're moving in the right direction there. I think you're going to find an audience for that kind of stuff. I know I would have liked it when I was learning web development. So other than the JavaScript challenges domain that doesn't point <laughs> to anything just yet, where can people find you if what you're doing sounds interesting to them? Yeah. Uh, so I'm James Q quick on about anything except for Instagram. Cause I got banned. That's a whole story. I didn't do anything wrong. It just happened. But uh, YouTube, James Q quick, uh, Twitter, James Q quick. I spent a lot of time in both of those. Uh, I am starting to hopefully pick up momentum on TikTok, James Q quick. I have a discord server called learn, build, teach. You can actually find uh, it'll redirect you if you go to learn, teach.com. Uh, that's been really special. That's one that uh, has grown. I think we're right at now almost 2000 members in the community, which is really cool um, to see so many people sharing content that they created, asking questions uh, and just contributing and being a part of the conversations that are going on there. Uh, so yeah, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and uh, and Discord are the biggest places to find me. Well, James, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. And thanks to you all for tuning in to Web Dev Weekly. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe in your podcast player. And you can check us out on Twitter. You can find all of our handles in the show notes below. We'll see you next week.